hear the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught. At Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, uh, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant to us to understand uh, these words that we are studying. Uh, we pray that you would speak deeply to our minds and our hearts about the good news that Jesus is alive. What does it mean? We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, to take these words from this text and apply these words, speak these words deep into each one of our souls. We long to hear from you now. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, this morning we are uh, celebrating uh, the great moment of the gospel when Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter morning. And, you know, Easter is an interesting holiday because if there's one holiday that you would probably describe as cute or cutesy, it's probably Easter. You know, all the colors are the pastels and you've got bunnies and Easter baskets and eggs and Easter dresses. And, you know, and I don't mind the cuteness at all. It's dripping with cuteness. My wife has bought me several Easter ties over the years. But the only problem is that the thing we are actually celebrating is not cute at all. If anything, is very strange. 
The Easter story is about how God became a man in Jesus Christ, and he was wrongfully sentenced to death on a cross. And so uh, God reversed the death sentence and resurrected Jesus' body from the dead. I wouldn't call that cute. If anything, it is the epic rising of a God from the dead. And not just that, you know, his spirit kind of lived on and his followers, nothing like that. No, his flesh and blood was resurrected to an indestructible life. And it didn't happen, you know, a long time ago in a land far, far away, you know, in, in some kind of legend. No, we know when it happened. It happened in the 30s A.D., we know what city had happened. It happened in Jerusalem. We actually know the names of many of the eyewitnesses. We know Pontius Pilate was the guy who crucified him. We know he was the governor during that time. We know Caiaphas was the high priest. It happened in history. It happened in public. And if you understand what is really happening, you can only say this is weird. And you might be tempted to think, because it's so weird, it must not have happened. In fact, I think the strangeness of the Easter story has repelled many people throughout history from the whole thing. But its strangeness has also attracted a lot of people. And I would definitely put myself in the category of someone who's attracted to the strangeness. Because, you know, I am so glad that when God finally acted in the world, the main thing he did was not give us a list of rules. You know, be kind to one another and work hard. You know, those rules are all important. But they don't have a power to them. There is a deeper power to the announcement God has raised a man from the dead. Evil has been undone. There is something strange and wonderful about those words. And so this morning, I'd like to make three observations from this passage about the weirdness of Easter. And I think really, you know, seeing and appreciating the weirdness of of Easter is important. So three things. This is what I want to say is that Easter is so weird, first of all, but it's the only possible ending to this story. Second, Easter is so weird that many people will doubt it. And third, Easter is so weird, you have to believe it before you can come to know it is true. And my hope is that through these observations, you can taste some of the strange wonder of what Easter is about this morning. So three things, and the first is this. Easter is so weird, but it's the only possible ending to this story. And what I mean by saying this story is that I mean the Bible says that we are all characters living in a story in human history that God is writing. And in verse 54 of this passage that I just read, we have a simple summary where Jesus talks about the story and the ending to the story. If you look at verse 54, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I'll tell you what Jesus is describing in that little verse is he's saying there is a new age to human history coming in the future. You know that word, you say that word eternal? It's the Greek word ionios, and it's where we get the word eon. So what he's saying is there's a new eon coming, a new age that is coming in the future. And that age to come will begin with what Jesus calls the last day, which, you know, of course, in the Bible, the last day is the day of judgment where humanity will stand before God. And I know some of you might say, you know, I I don't like when the Bible starts talking about God judging people. And, uh, um, but the day of God's judgment is simply the day when God will rid the world of evil. That's what we, would we want that? God to rid the world of evil? I think we want that. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Often the people who say, I would not believe in a God who's a judge are the same people who say, why is God letting all this evil happen in the world? It's like they're saying, I don't like that he's a judge and I do want, expect him to be a judge at the same time. It's kind of a lose-lose. And Jesus says that God 
is slow to judge, but eventually he will come and he will set the world to rights. And he says that if people are willing to, Jesus says if people are willing to accept, accept his gift on that day, you know, the last day, they will be raised from the dead. And by the way, this is another thing. Scholars have pointed out that that word used there for raised, anistomy, is not just that in the age to come, people's souls or spirits, you know, will go and live in the netherworld and we will float around as, as, you know, spirits floating around on clouds. That's not what it is. It refers to the resurrection of the body. It's saying in the age to come, we're going to eat and breathe and run and play and hug and sing and explore God's good green earth. We are going to be human in the age to come. So Jesus is saying in this little verse that there is an ending to this story of human history, that there, is a, there will be a day when God will begin a new age where all who have eaten Jesus' flesh and drank his blood will live in a renewed earth with no evil and indestructible bodies forever. Now, you might hear that and say, wow, that is out there. Um, but I want to ask you this. Let's just pretend for a minute we are living in a story. You and I are characters in a story. And it's a story written by a good God. Is it going to have a happy ending? And if this story is going to have a happy ending, I just ask you, what would, what's the only thing that could be in that happy ending? Almost anyone would say, well, humans would start treating each other well, and I'd lose the people that I've lost to death. I'd get the people back that I've lost. And Jesus is saying, that's going to happen. That's exactly what he's saying is going to happen. And that's why I say this is the only possible ending to the story. Even though it sounds strange to us, it's the only possible ending. And I'll tell you kind of what this ending is like. You know, some of you have read the Lord of the Rings books or maybe you've seen the movies. If you haven't read Lord of the Rings, it's a story about this world called Middle Earth. And in the third age of Middle-earth, there was a dark lord, Sauron, who's been gathering his armies in Mordor. And he is going to oppress all the peoples of Middle-earth. There's like hobbits and elves and dwarves and humans. They're all going to be oppressed. And the end of the third book, there is this great war at Gondor where these allies come together to fight the armies of, of Sauron. And they, by a miracle, defeat the armies. And, and Sauron is defeated. And at the end of the book, Aragorn, the promised king, is enthroned. And Middle-earth passes from the third age of Middle-earth into the fourth age of Middle-earth, where no longer is Sauron in power, but Aragorn is ruling over all the people, and everyone lives in blessing, and all the hobbits have their gardens, and the elves, you know, have, have gone off across the sea, and everyone's happy together. And uh, what... Where am I here? Okay. And... Uh, <laughs> And what Jesus is saying is that's going to be the end of this story. Now, you might hear that and say, okay, that's probably literally the, the nerdiest thing I've ever heard. You not only like Lord of the Rings, you think we're living in something like Lord of the Rings, where Jesus is Aragorn, the promised king, and Satan is Sauron, the dark lord, and the life to come is the fourth age of Middle Earth. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Jesus is Aragorn the king and Gandalf the wizard and Frodo the hobbit all mixed into one. So the story we're living in is better than the story in Middle Earth. And if you, can't, if you don't think our world is as weird as Middle Earth, I just want you to imagine a little hobbit in, in his little house writing a story about this world he made up. And he's telling his hobbit friends, there's this world and they have these airplanes that they fly through the sky and they have like 200 people in this metal container that goes 500 miles an hour. And it's like five miles up in the sky and you can go all the way across the whole world in one day. And all the other hobbits are like, no, that's too crazy. I can't believe in a world like that. 
Except we're living in a world like that. We are living in a strange world. And you might, uh, and that's why we don't realize that we're living in a story. When you walk out these doors today and you see the cherry blossoms, behold their glory. Go to your spouse, go to your children, go to your roommate, go to your brother or sister, grab one of those cherry blossoms and look them in the eye and say, we are living in Middle Earth. Look at the glory of the world. You are a strange creature. Now you might think, well, that's a massively different way of understanding uh, the kind of world we are living in. Why should I have any reason to believe in eternal ages and a last day and bodies being raised from the dead? Well, that is why we are celebrating Easter today. Because all that Jesus says will happen in the future has already happened once in the past in him. Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago was a preview of what God intends to do with the whole world. He says, I'm going to heal my world. Just as he healed Jesus, he's the first fruits of a new creation is the way the Bible puts it. And when Jesus was raised for the dead, he was shown to be the true king of the world and the eternal age, the fourth age of Middle Earth, if you want to say, began when Jesus was raised from the dead. And so if you've put your hope in Christ, you've already started to taste some of what that age is like. You know, the love, the beauty, the goodness, the joy of knowing Christ, of walking with him, of of being a part of his people. It's like you have one foot in the present kind of evil suffering age and one foot in the age to come. We are a part of both ages. And so first, my first point this morning is that Easter is weird, but it is the only possible ending to the story if this story has a happy ending. And we know that that ending will come because it's already happened once in Jesus. But that raises a question because you say, okay, if Easter is the only possible ending of the story, why does it seem so foreign to us? You know, why aren't we like, oh, yeah, of course bodies are going to rise from the dead. Of course God's going to come in judgment. Why, why, does it, why does it seem so alien when we hear that news? And that leads to our second point, that Easter is so weird, but many will doubt it. And... Uh, Doubt is an important part of this passage that I just uh, read to you. For example, you see in verse 60 where it says, when, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And I think, you know, probably for some of you, you could imagine saying that exact same thing. Maybe you're not a Christian. You say, you know, I'm interested in having some God in my life, some spirituality, maybe be a part of a church, maybe learn about some of Jesus' teachings and I could become a better person. But eating Jesus' flesh and bodies rising from the dead and an eternal age to come, this is all a little much for me. And, you know, you can see with some of the disciples how they respond in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Which means many will doubt. Many doubted back then. Many will doubt now. And in this passage, there are a number of reasons why people doubted what Jesus was saying. You know, these are first century Jews. And Jesus talks about drinking his blood, and, you know, first century Jews did not eat blood. And so the idea of drinking blood, that was just gross. So some of them walked away because it's too gross. And then earlier in this sermon, Jesus started saying things where it, that equated him to God. He said, I'm equal to God. Other people said, a man is equal to God. We can't have that. And they start walking away for that. Now, I think that we have our own reasons why we tend to doubt the gospel. You know, some of you might say, well, we, we're modern scientific people. We don't believe in bodies rising, uh, rising again from the dead. But I think that there is a, a stronger reason 
we don't believe in the hope of Easter. And uh, Paul Miller is a, is a pastor on the East Coast who uh, wrote a really helpful book on prayer called A Praying Life. And in that book, he says that the dominant spirit of our age is a spirit of cynicism. And he describes cynicism this way. He says, the opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. It just feels like we can't find the joy in things. Like we are too aware to trust or hope. Cynicism creates a numbness toward life. Cynicism begins with a wry assurance that everything has an angle. Behind every silver lining is a cloud. The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaging, loving, and hoping. To be cynical is to be distant. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. We think being cynical is authentic, right? You know, I'm facing what's really going on. But it also assumes that the deepest reality to what we're living in is bad news. And it assumes that the ending to our story is going to be bad news. And so the main reason that we doubt Easter is really because it's too good to be true. And actually, I've read modern philosophers who say the only reason I reject Christianity is because it's too good. The argument against it is its goodness. Goodness is, is why they don't believe it. That is amazing. And so Easter is a direct challenge to our cynicism, a direct challenge to the spirit of our age. So that's why, you know, for example, John Calvin, when he's writing on this passage in John 6, and, you know, he raises the question, why did the disciples say that what Jesus was saying was a hard saying? What was hard about his saying? And John Calvin says, there wasn't anything hard about his saying. He is offering people eternal life to live in a renewed world with God forever. I mean, it's an immensely gracious gift. John Calvin says the thing that was hard was the disciples' hearts. They resisted the good news. We don't want to believe good news. And that's exactly Jesus' response to the disciples uh, saying that it is so hard. If you look at verse 61, this is what it says. But Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, listen to these words, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus says the good news of Easter is so contrary to our nature that you can't believe in it unless it has been granted to you by the Father. Now some of you might wonder, if you hear that, say, well, how do I know if it's been granted to me by the Father to believe this good news that Jesus said? Well, if it's you all, I would say you're here for some reason. <laughs> and if there's something that's stirring you that says, I want to know God, that might be a sign that it has been granted to you by the Father. If you have someone, a Christian who loves you and is talking to you about God, asking questions that you've never thought of before, that's a sign that God has his sights set on you. It is God who comes and pursues us. It's not us who goes and pursues God. And those would be clues that God is working in your life. But I'll tell you that God's ways are mysterious to us and his purposes. We don't know what he does. He deals with all of us in an individual and different manner. 
But the thing that we are called to do is to believe, and, that, and that's the last thing that we learned from this passage this morning. So, so far we said that Easter is so weird, it is the only possible ending to the story that we are living in. But many will doubt it because uh, unless God does a work of grace in their hearts. But lastly, Easter is so weird, you have to believe it before you can know it is true. You have to believe it before you can know it is true. And you see that in this passage. You know, Jesus has just said these wild statements about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. I'm going to raise you up on the last day. And then many of his followers are just leaving. And then in verse 67, this is what it says. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And this is a pretty kind of vulnerable moment. Here's the son of God, and he's got his 12 closest followers. Everyone's leaving, and he's like, all right, what about you guys? Are you guys leaving too? And I think Peter, he gives this remarkable answer to the question. In verse 60, first in verse 68, it says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I just want to pause because, you know, we've said so far the gospel says that there's this coming future where if you are in Christ, you'd live in a new, renewed creation. You know, no more death, no more cancer, no more abuse, no more sin, no more betrayal, no more loneliness. God is all in all. It's love. There is joy. Everything that humanity was meant to be, we will finally become what humanity is meant to be. And so when Jesus asks his 12, well, why aren't you turning away too? Peter says, because no one else is offering what you are offering. And that statement is still true today. Tell me someone in the history of the world who is even pretending to promise the complete healing of humanity. I mean, who would even promise to pretend that? To, to say that? There is no one. Why? Because who would dare to offer so absurdly unimaginable, something so absurdly unimaginable except the one who has already risen from the dead? And so where else are you going to go for hope except to Jesus Christ? But then Peter goes on, and he says this in verse 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says we first believed, we trusted you, we walked with you, we listened to you, we followed you, we spent time with you, and we have come to know that this is the truth. Which I think is different than the way that most of us think. You know, many of us think, you know, when I know something for certain, I'm going to get all the proof, I'm going to get all the evidence. And when I'm absolutely certain this is it, then I'm going to trust myself to it. I'm going to believe it. And, but, you know, it sounds risky to us to say I'm going to believe first and then I'm going to come to know. But actually, all the most important decisions that we make in our lives are this way. You know, you want to get married? You don't know everything about that person. There's a ton you don't know about the person when you get married. And you're never going to get married. If you're going to wait for absolute certainty, you'll never get married. Or if you want to start a business, you don't know what's going to happen in that business. You have to jump into it. And then as time goes on, that's when confidence can grow. You don't know completely and with absolute certainty at the beginning what you were getting into. And, you know, by the way, if I could just say all knowledge is this way. You know, before I was a pastor... I, I study math. My dream was to be a math professor. And if you, you know, go to Western Washington University and you study math, you want to be a math professor, your junior year, they have a class called the Introduction to Proofs. And they tell you the first day of that class, in this class we are going to build mathematics from the ground up. 
And this class was the beginning of the rest of my undergraduate, and I did three years of graduate work. So the next five years, I did like hundreds of proofs, and they were all built on this one class. And the first day of class, they hand out these eight axioms, and they say everything about math that's going to be built is based on these eight axioms, which we cannot prove. There's no way to prove them. We can't start doing math. We can't start building infinite dimensional vector, normed vector fields or whatever. You know, we can't do any of that uh, until we have eight axioms that give us a foundation. You're just going to basically have to receive these on faith. That is how the Christian life is. You must trust before you can know. And in the Christian life, you're not trusting math axioms. You are trusting a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as you you walk with him, you find that he begins to make sense of everything, of your life and your emotions and your relationships and your work and your family, your biggest decision, everything ties together in him. And so this Easter, I invite you to open your eyes and see the strange glory of the world you are living in and to see that the hope that Jesus has risen from the dead is the key to the ending of this weird story that we are all a part of. And when you feel your cynical heart telling you, I must be crazy to believe this, I invite you to say to yourself, I'm going to have to trust my life to some foundation. Do I trust Jesus Christ? And when you do that, you will find that you have living inside of you this amazing good news. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together.